Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Joan Didion suggested that we tell ourselves stories in order to live. What she also said is that we live entirely by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting images of life into our actual experience. She saw those stories as a coping mechanism to get through each day. But imagine what else that idea could take on. The use of those images and stories, not just to interpret and to cope, but to shape the world, to move others, to create a world to conform to your own vision. Clausewitz said that diplomacy was war by other means, that we lived in a world of protracted conflict. And in fact, we spend our lives in that conflict negotiating at work, at home, with kids, and with friends. My guest Rich Cohn's story about his father, Herbie, is the up-close and personal story of making all of this work. As Rich tells his father's story, it's not Jeffrey or Tobias Wolfe seeing their father's storytelling through the lens of deception, but through a celebration of the power of imagination and persuasion. Rich Cohn is the New York Times bestselling author of numerous books, including Tough Jews, Sweet and Low, The Chicago Cubs, The Last Pirate of New York, and a biography of music business impresario Jerry Weintraub. He's the co-creator of the HBO series Vinyl and a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and a writer at large for Airmail. It is my pleasure to welcome Rich Cohn back to this program once again to talk about the adventures of Herbie Cohn, world's greatest negotiator. Rich, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Great introduction. Well, thank you. It does seem that the world is divided into two groups, those that tell stories to themselves in order to cope with the world around them and those that tell stories in order to shape the world. And that certainly was your father in so many respects. Yeah, well, he's sort of of this storytelling tradition that comes from his family where when you ask him a question, you don't get an answer, you get a story. And you got to kind of figure it out for yourself. And I do think that he, his big message when he wrote that book, You Can Negotiate Anything, was that People have power, even if they don't think they have power. He went around saying that for a whole year on every kind of TV show, which is power is based on perception. If you think you got it, you got it, even if you don't got it, something like that. So basically, I think that he had almost kind of a vision of the world where people were letting themselves just be subject to events. And to him, that became negotiation. But with him, everything that he cared about was just about life. And I think that... um that he thought that, you know, he had this kind of feeling about big institutions sort of sitting on top of people and that you actually, that these institutions just consist of people making decisions. And when that's the case, it's all about negotiating. And when he wrote his book in 1980, people were scared of negotiating. It was like, they didn't want to go into, you know, it was like an intimidating thing. It wasn't, business had a different relationship to people. And his message was sort of, I don't have to teach you to negotiate. You're already negotiating every day. You just don't realize it. And I'm just going to make you realize what you're doing so you can be better at it and take control. And he said that the key to the whole thing is to approach life like a game. And that'll make you live longer, have more fun and be better at the game, better at life. And uh, one thing he said, I just heard him say recently, I hadn't heard it before, which I love. I keep thinking about it. He said, the kids are the best negotiators because I have little kids now. And he said, you can just tell, like when you ask a kid what they want for their birthday, they always start by setting a very high mark, open with a big demand, which is usually a car. And they don't end up getting the car, but they pull everything up. So they end up getting way more than you 
would have given them because you don't want to disappoint them at some level so that you do the best you can. Part of it was also a realization that people wanted to be told what to do in a way. People wanted to be brought along for the ride. Yeah, I mean, he, he it was a real questioning of authority because it was this idea that he had this idea, like one of the things he did that was really new is he told people you can negotiate at a Sears. People thought you can negotiate for a car, for a house, but the idea that you can walk into a big store like Sears and negotiate was just a crazy idea to people. He used to say that the the, the sticker price they put on there looks like it was printed by the big printer in the sky, you know, but he had this thing that actually that price is a product of a negotiation between a bunch of executives and anything that is a product of a negotiation is itself negotiable. How much of all of this do you think was about the timing of when he, when he did this, when he took this approach that if you took this approach today, it might be less successful in some respect. Well, I just think that he thinks that the field is always changing, but you, there's always a way. The main his main message is that you always have a choice, that you can always sort of, you know, it came. It's this whole idea about a history, which is, you know, that you that you basically don't have to accept things the way they are. I think he would be just as successful at it today, and actually, it's harder today because one of his big things is is you got to live with ambiguity. And if you can live with ambiguity, you can be very successful. And if you can't live with ambiguity, then you can you pay for that by accepting less than you can get or getting a bad deal. And um, people have forgotten to live with ambiguity, I think, largely because of the social media and the Internet. Everything is so fast. Every response is so quick. And one of the things that blew me away when he's a kid, I, I, I asked somebody a question, expected an answer, and he said, what, what did the person say? He's asking for something. And I said, I got no response. And he goes, that's the response. No response is a response. No answer is an answer. And when you look at that, you realize you always get a response. So it's true at the time when he came up with his book, it was kind of a new genre. He wrote his book in our basement in longhand. He went down there and came out with a book. It was turned down by like 22 publishers before he finally found someone to accept it. And the reason is, I know now because I'm in publishing, is it kind of fell between stools. It was he invented a new genre, which was a business self-help book that really wasn't about business. It was about relationships and about life. And, um, you know, it ended up selling over a million copies and being this huge bestseller because it, needed, it, it met a need. But people didn't. It was new. And whenever you have something new, you have a, tr- you have a problem. Where did he learn these skills? That's what I loved, which is he taught it lectured at Harvard and Yale and taught at Michigan when I was a kid, University of Michigan. But he learned these skills on the streets in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, when he was a kid. He was constantly getting into and out of trouble, just seeing what he could get away with. Talking his way into Ebbets Field on a sold-out afternoon to see Jackie Robinson play in the 1950s, that was a, nego- that was a negotiation for him. That was where he learned it. He was part of a little youth gang called the uh, Warriors, and they were, you know, constantly trying to figure out how to furnish their clubhouse, how to, win, you know, get some softball game or baseball game. So I think that's really where he learned. And then he had a lot of experience, which is he went into the Army during the Korean War, and he had a lot of experiences then. And he, after the military, he, he was taking law school classes at night. He already had met my mother. My brother and sister had been born. And he needed money 
So he got a job as a claims adjuster at Allstate Insurance. And that winds up being like for a would-be negotiator, like standing in a batting cage and hitting pitch after pitch after pitch. I mean, it's like 10 deals, deal closings a day. And he became very quick at closing these deals and, and very, very quickly. The thing he learned at Allstate was you're better off overpaying a little bit and closing a deal fast than saving a little money and having it take an extra day. You save more money by closing deals fast. There was also the sense that he was never willing to just take no for an answer, that that he was fearless and and shameless in many ways in trying to accomplish what he wanted. Well, it's just one of his quotes that I loved is he said, as long as you get there before it's over, you're never late. You know, so basically that was the idea, which is no is just a starting position. You know, but the really, there's something very optimistic about the way he taught negotiation because he's the guy who popularized the phrase win-win. He'd been working in game theory at the University of Michigan, and they were looking at game theory, and there was lose-lose, win-lose, lose-win, and win-win. And he said win-win was not only like sort of karmically the right way to live and the right way to think, it was also the only way to be successful long-term because if you sort of negotiate with somebody and you force a win-lose situation where they come out behind, then unless you make that person disappear, you now have somebody that is looking for a way out of the deal that they made because they came out the loser and the deal will collapse. And I've seen this happen myself with, you know, you think you get a great deal on a house and the, the contract falls apart because the person you're doing the deal with is unhappy and feels like they have lost and is looking for a way out of it. And, um, one of his big things is if you're doing a deal, you have to basically include the other side in the final settlement, not dictate. And the reason he'd say is because people support things they create. And if you feel like they help create it, then they're going to help support it, which means it has a chance to succeed. If they had it dictated to them, then they're going to, and it's going to fail. Some advice Elon Musk could probably use these days. I know. Well, see, my father says that the single worst way to talk to somebody is by text. So the, you know, I, he hasn't even worked his way to the tweet, to the public tweet, <laughs> or the or the poop emoji. You know, right. so definitely, um, you know, the one thing that Elon Musk does that is I, he would think is right is that Elon Musk is uh, completely unpredictable. You know, but I would say that um, one of his things he always says in a negotiation, and this is the anti-Elon Musk, is that often in a negotiation, dumb is better than smart. And he'd say that, the, you know, you don't want to act like you know everything. You want to act like the stupider person. You'll do better off if you act like you don't know. And he always said that sometimes the best sentence in a deal is an I know better or I'm going to get this. The best phrase in a deal is I don't understand. Do you help me understand? Because that completely disarms people. The other part of it is reading the room, understanding human nature, understanding the player being the first step in the process. Yeah, well, that's his big thing, which is he helped set up the FBI's behavioral sciences unit, which then became famous for building these very long portraits of serial killers and stuff. But he was interested or what he was working on was hostage situations, hostage negotiations and high stress uh, negotiations like that. And his thing was to under he used to quote Arthur Miller. I'm not going to get it exactly right, but the price, the play called the price. And he would say to understand the player. You have to understand the price. You have to understand the player, which is you could be going to somebody and offering them things that don't mean anything to them. It has no meaning. You got to figure out what matters and what's going to give you leverage 
with the other side. So you have to sort of see the world through that person's eyes. And I always thought when I read his when I read his stuff, there were two things he was teaching, which are almost religious, which is one is kind of this detachment, approach life as a game. He said the secret to success is to care, but not that much. And the other was what I called radical empathy, which is you have to look at it from the other person's side if you want to get a deal, if you want to know what's important to them. Sometimes, like even with Ukraine, you feel like we don't understand the other side enough to really know what's going to move us in the direction we want. Part of it is, is making the other side feel empowered in some respects. Yeah, well, making them feel part of the process, making them feel like they matter and never humiliating or, or trapping them. you got to always give them a way out and a way to save face unless you really want to destroy them. And that's something else, you know. But if you want to end up, if you're looking at this situation and saying this is going to end with both of us still in existence, then we need to reach some kind of accommodation that we can both live with. Because if this person is going to live with, can't live with, they're going to make my life hell. And to do that, I have to make this person feel like I recognize them, I understand their needs, I understand who they are, and they have caused me to stretch a little more than I'm comfortable stretching. As he grew up on the streets of Bensonhurst with the likes of Sandy Koufax and Larry King, how did this become his skill? How did this emerge as his skill? It's like almost an inborn. I think part of it is his parents were immigrants. They didn't speak English as a first language. The neighborhood was incredibly diverse. And he just loves mixing it up with people, talking to people. I mean, if you were to call him on the phone right now, he'd talk to you for hours. He just so to him, the thing about negotiation for him is it was fun. He loved to do this. And when we didn't want to do it, he would say, I love to do it, and they love to do it. This is like uh, we're just screwing around, you know. So to him, it was all incredibly fun, and it was a big challenge. Like one of my favorite things to do when I was a kid is if I wanted to get tickets to something or get in somewhere, and I asked him, he would probably say no. But if I said to him, it's sold out, no one can get tickets. He'd go, no one get tickets? I can get tickets. I'd be like, you can't. It's completely sold out. He'd be like, you can't get tickets. Your brother can't get tickets, but I will get us in. And we would end up going to whatever it was. <laughs> it's just a big game to him, you know? It's like the whole thing was fun. And he started teaching how to do it by basically telling – what happened is he went to Allstate, and he was so good at doing these deals, connecting to people, that they had him train everybody else. And he became the head of like the, this insurance company in the Northeast, and they brought him in to Sears to train all their executives how to negotiate. He wound up in the – executive suite of tears and this is just stuff literally that he picked up on the playground as a kid you know larry king would tell the story uh the mapo story you can google it this famous story where they were they went to school and they said a kid who was who had tuberculosis had died and they raised money for his funeral it's a crazy story but they were going to get expelled and my father looked at the principal and said listen you can expel us and we're never going to go to school again but think about your situation. You're never going to work in New York City again. You know, which is like Larry said that was my father turning into a negotiator because he looked at the world through the principal's eyes and he recognized that though they seemed like they had no power, they were 13-year-old kids in a public school who did something very bad. They actually did have power if they recognized what it was. And he was so good at recognizing where where he could find those edges, where he could find that power. The other side of it is that most people hated negotiation. Most people really did everything to avoid it. Right. And But his thing was, you're already doing it. You just don't know you're doing it. And to make that point, his book, he started with an example of me 
I hated going to restaurants when I was a kid. I hated sitting at a table and waiting for food. And I, and I, I just hated going. And they, I, they took me to a restaurant, and I had a huge fit in the restaurant. And then I stood up on the table and yelled, this is a crummy restaurant. And they dragged me out of the restaurant. And he would say, and they didn't take me to the restaurant for 10 years, which is exactly what I had wanted. And he would say I had sort of was a negotiator. I, didn't, I, I used my – I used information – which was that they hated to be publicly shamed as anybody would to do something to get what I wanted. And that you're doing that all the time without realizing. And if you can realize that you don't have to be afraid of negotiation because you're doing it every day. And his first line of his book, I think, which I always remembered is the world is a giant negotiating table and you're participating even if you don't want to. And even if you don't realize it. So his thing was to slightly demystify that whole process and realize that the business negotiation and dealing with your family, it's all ultimately the same thing. And when he came away from negotiations, whether they were with the family, whether it was about getting tickets or whatever, or, or, or something more serious, did he have a sense of, of one-upping the other side, of besting the other person, or was it simply the process that brought him joy? The process and the idea that he had sort of solved the problem. You know, there had been these two sides that couldn't reconcile, and he had reconciled them. And they both came away, you know, not completely satisfied, but largely satisfied and wanting this thing to work. And he used to joke when I was a kid and he was doing zillions of these deals where they bring him in. You know, he worked for the players, football, the NFL Players Union and for the Baseball Umpires Union, settled police strikes. He would say, I'm not really a negotiator. Think of me as a, as a high plains drifter like in a Clint Eastwood movie. There's like a problem, some problem in a little town. I go in. I settle the problem and I move on to the next town. And he started wearing actually a high plains drifter hat. And there were always pictures of him in this crazy cowboy hat. See, part of it is we grew up in Illinois. I grew up in Illinois and he was this Brooklyn guy and it was like a fish out of water thing. So, and that was another one of his big things is like when we moved to Illinois, my mother was embarrassed by her accent and tried to figure out how to blend in to Illinois. And my father, you know, highlighted his differences. His, His accent became even thicker. And uh, he always said that, you know, being different is really, really valuable in any kind of marketplace. And to make this point, he would say a nose that can hear is worth two that can smell. And that's his general philosophy. He also understood the power of setting the table, of marketing, of, of really kind of creating the history that he wanted to create. Yeah, he used to say that marketing is 90% of life. And he would say to me when I started publishing books, he'd rather have a great marketer, a great marketer in a mediocre book than a masterpiece and somebody who doesn't know how to sell, you know, and um, that's definitely influenced me my whole life. And I think the idea, I, here's like a little tiny lesson he gave me when I was a kid, which is I used to turn papers in and say, yeah, this is a terrible paper. I worked really hard. I tried my best, but it's bad and hand it into the teacher and I would get a C and he heard what I was doing. And I thought, I don't know what I was apologizing for myself, flooring expectations. He said, no, if you tell somebody it's a bad paper, they will believe it's a bad paper. People believe what they are told. What you do is you tell them, this is a great paper. This is the best paper I've ever written. I, I hope you like it as much as I do. I think it's kind of a masterpiece. And then you get an A. And I tried that out, and he was right about that. And that's like sort of establishing the world, you know, setting it up. The thing he says is believing is seeing. You know, if people expect to see something, they usually see it. So if people expect a good paper, that's usually what they see. 
There wasn't the argument of lowered expectations. You tell them it's bad. No, it's not. It's much better than he said, and you're going to get a better grade. No, no, he didn't believe in that. You know, he, he was a marketer in a way. He believed in, look, his book is called You Can Negotiate Anything, How to Get What You Want. Those are two gigantic promises, you know. Um, what's interesting to me was he often didn't follow his own rules, of course, because he's a human being and he screwed up. And, and for me as a son – and what makes it a real story, The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, is that, uh, first of all, he's very, very funny and a very funny person to grow up with. But the fact that he would, you know, he says, you should care, but not that much. But then I'd see him completely overcommit to stuff, lose his mind about completely unimportant things, you know, go completely crazy. It sort of told you that, you know, you, you, you shoot to live this kind of way. You, you know, you go for it, but you, it's the coming up short that really defines you and how you respond to it. And um, he used to joke that the best, the, there was a book, Werner von Braun, who built the V2 rocket. His book was called Shoot for the Stars. And he'd say, he shot, he shot for the stars, but he didn't reach the stars, but he hit London a hell of a lot of times, you know? So the idea was you, you raise everything up and it causes you to sort of, you know, rise to the occasion. How else did it impact you in terms of the way you just deal with life and negotiations every day? Well, first of all, when his, when his book came out and was a huge bestseller, every teacher gave me some version of, you can't negotiate everything in this class, Mr. Cohen, which was sort of horrible, actually. And, um, but it gave me this idea that you, you can question authority because authority is nothing but you plus a little bit of time. And basically, people create all this kind of authority to intimidate you but if you realize you have power in a situation, it gives you a feeling of agency. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to make people feel like they had agency. And I, as a kid, I never got intimidated in the way I saw other kids get by teachers, by coaches, by everything else, because I realized that these were just people with a little bit older than me, really not any different, different than me. And I had a lot of power in the situation. You know, there was a certain role I had to play, but I had, free, I had an ultimate kind of freedom. So I think that as a father, it was, for me as a kid, it was great because I wasn't scared and I was sort of always able to be a little philosophical about what was going on in my life because I could, he, he did successfully teach me how to sort of be a little bit detached, see it as if from above and put it all in perspective. And another thing he always said is, you know, his big thing is that in the long scheme of things, None of this really matters anyway. He would say the, uh, it's just a walnut in the batter of life, just a blip on the radar screen of eternity. That's what he'd say when I had something I was worried about, and it really did make me feel like, okay, in the big scheme of things, this doesn't matter, so I might as well just do what I think is right. Rich Cohn, the book is The Adventures of Herbie Cohn, World's Greatest Negotiator. Rich, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Thank you.